1: Hey everybody, welcome back to E2 Entrepreneurs Exposed. Happy August to everyone. Hope this episode finds you well. Today is my great conversation with Isaac Langelben, who's the co-founder of Open Farm, one of North America's fastest growing premium pet food companies. And in this one, we discuss the growth of the pet industry and how millennials have changed the entire market for pets and related products. We also discuss how shopping behavior has changed during the pandemic, both in-store and online. Isaac's plan to crystallize the customer experience on the web. We also discuss Chewy's sale to PetSmart.com for $3.3 billion, one of the largest e-commerce transactions in history, and much, much more. So with that, let's get to the show. Here is Isaac Langelbin. Well, let's start with the founding story. So in in 2015, Open Farm was born, you had your own dogs, you were looking for options to feed your pets, and you saw this white space in the market. So what opportunity gave you the confidence to start this five years ago?
0: Yeah, so, you know, we, we kind of stumbled into the pet industry in a lot of ways. And I say we, you know, we're a family business. My wife, Jacqueline, and I actually have three companies or started three companies in the pet space. Um, open Farm, we we co-founded actually with our brother-in-law. Jacqueline and I kind of got into the pet space in 2010 through another business called Canada Pooch, which is a lifestyle pet accessories brand. You know, Jacqueline was really the entrepreneur on that one. Dropped out of law school, started started that business. I worked the night shift with her, getting that up and running, and it really just broke us into the industry. And I think it showed us. You know, how big a category pet really is. I don't think, you know, we always loved animals, but we had no idea how big just a consumer products category it is. And and really how much fun it is. It's a great, especially if you love love dogs, cats, like it's it's a really fun space with lots of opportunity. So open farm, you know, part of the genesis for open farm was just seeing like, wow, you know, there's this 35, 40 billion dollar industry in North America called pet food. People love their pets, they're treating them. More and more like members of the family. That was certainly true for me, Jacqueline and Derek. And there was already a trend to, you know, people spending more on their dogs' diets, caring about um, their health and wellness. But you, you were still a few years behind what we were seeing in in broader consumer foods around natural products. And and that's really where we saw the opportunity. Back then, we kind of said it's kind of like the Whole Foods for your dog. I think the market has moved so much in consumer foods and just natural foods are now everywhere and health and wellness is so big. But back when we were starting in pet, especially it was still very, very early and it was really just a product we were looking for for ourselves. That just didn't exist.
1: What was happening with Canada Pooch at the time? So it was five years in and then open farm was started and all of a sudden you're juggling two businesses. How did that work?
0: (laughs) Yeah. You know, it's, um, it, it was a challenge. And I think, you know, so we brought in uh, a third co-founder for Open Farm, um, our brother-in-law, Derek. Um, so had another set of hands for that business. Um, so there were challenges and there were also advantages. You know, Canada Pooch, we came in really knowing the industry, already having a network of distribution, um, already having a really good feel for the for the industry and the consumer. Obviously that that was all key having confidence in the early execution in open farm. But, you know, challenges in terms of bandwidth. I mean, running one business, starting one business is, is a ton of, of work and blood, sweat and tears. And I think, honestly, it was it was challenging and it was all hands on deck.
1: Were you frustrated that you couldn't find natural or organic ingredients that you were satisfied with for your own pet? And that was sort of the impetus to things. What was the real pain point that you were struggling with?
0: Yeah, exactly, you know, so I remember it was our dog Bella who was our first dog. We now have have 3, but you know, we went to the pet store and we also got educated about pet food through being in this industry, you know, like when we first got Bella in 2010, I believe it was. You know, we went to PetSmart and we just bought a food that had a nice bag, and I think over the course of 5 years in the pet industry, we learned a lot about pet nutrition and how to really improve Bella's diet. But the pain point was really going to a pet store and, and Jacqueline asking, you know, where does the meat in this bag come from? Like, how were the animals raised? What kind of farm was it? And them kind of staring at us like we were crazy. And maybe we were a bit, cra- <laughs> a bit crazy. But I think when we looked at the consumer food space and Whole Foods and, you know, just how we were shopping for, for the food we were feeding ourselves, um, we really cared about where it came from. And, and that directly translated to can I trust this product? Is it good quality? Is it healthy? And, and that became the foundation for Open Farm, really giving consumers transparency into, into what's going into the food, how it's made, um, that you know it's coming from a good place and that you know it's, it's a super clean food for your, for your dog. So it really, the pain point, honestly, was directly to us as consumers wanting to feel good about what we were feeding our pet.
1: You say it might sound crazy, but I think this is more representative of the entire millennial market as it relates to pets. And so there's this interesting market shift that's happening. Like, How do we get from baby boomers feeding their pets Costco-sized bags of kibble, let's say, to millennials now feeding their pets organic turkey, grass-fed beef, and the like?
0: I wish I had a good answer for you. Since we got into this space, that trend has been really f- strong and just it's kept going past i think where we started i mean canada pooch is a as co- a company that does pet apparel accessories um mm-hmm. that are honestly like the same quality for of something you might buy for yourself or for your kids and i think so we've seen it firsthand in all of our businesses how how this humanization trend is just so big and it it actually spans generations you know millennials are definitely at the forefront of it and Millennials are now the biggest demographic in the pet industry um, in terms of consumption. And I think there's a bunch of trends that play into that, right? You know, Generally, people are having kids later. They're building their, their human families at a later stage. And so pets are kind of a formative part of the family early on. So that's one huge driver. But honestly, in our consumer base, we see it with baby boomers. And we see it like with empty nesters as well, frankly.
1: Research has shown that one in three U.S. pet owners are millennial or something like that. And this is the segment that's responsible for 43% of pet owner growth over the past decade. Um, Obviously, this is just one piece of data. There's probably others, but assuming that we're on on the right track here given these stats is the assumption that if you're a pet food company that plans to be around in the next five or ten years that you better make sure that you're a player in the organic space
0: yeah I mean I think or I think organic natural I think like high quality ingredients have almost become kind of table stakes and I think it's um and again that's kind of true across demographics and not just um, age but even like income level geography like we see you know it really is about just a love for for pets. And I think that's, what's been really interesting to us as we've done consumer research is you kind of assume you almost have a, a picture, like your consumer persona that is high income millennial. And, you know, there, there certainly are links to the to income level in terms of what people can afford to feed, but genuinely it's like people love their pets and, and how are they trying to optimize their nutrition? We see that across the board, but I think it's, I think high quality ingredients has kind of become table stakes and it's really become about in a way having like kind of offering full nutrition solutions, not necessarily just a better quality kibble, but a more formative diet across different formats and an ability to like feed your pet the way, you know, that's more exciting than just putting some kibble in a bowl. It's really about understanding, you know, what combination of food supplements do you want to give your pet to help them have have optimal health and and feel great. Um, and so the way we kind of get at that is, you know, we we have definitely high end kind of dry dog food or kibble, but we offer a lot of different ways to, to upgrade that diet in terms of, you know, supplements, supplemental feeding tools like bone broth or kefir. We have, you know, some alternative format diets like our our gently cooked. That's literally like a human grade. Meal that comes frozen, you thaw it out, and it looks like something that you made on your stovetop. It's like an awesome. Dogs go crazy for it, and it's it's a way to get your dog fresh food. So it's really about finding. You know, everyone is going to have their lifestyle and their budget, but there are so many options now to really offer a more customized feeding solution. And I think that's what we're seeing as the big trend as the millennial consumer kind of takes a bigger a bigger uh, part of our industry.
1: What about trends related to the pandemic, Uh, in particular your space? So, have you seen that people have actually purchased more pets as they've sheltered in place? Do you have any data
0: on that? Pet adoptions have spiked during the course of the pandemic. I mean, I think working from home has, you know, whether it's people who who live alone or or families that have kind of seen reduced travel um, from from parents, for example. Like, we've adoptions have spiked. And so that's obviously a tailwind for our business. I think it's great to see this many dog adoptions just, you know, in terms of of getting these dogs out of shelters and into into homes. But it's it's also been and will be kind of a, a tailwind for our industry. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, other trends from COVID. I mean, you know, obviously, as a we're we're fortunate on the food side to be an essential product. And I think that's kept us it's kept us very busy throughout COVID. Um You know we like other food categories and essentials categories saw you know a lot of stockpiling activity um so really making sure our supply chain is up and running and making sure we're ready to serve our customers has been kind of was priority number one at the outset of this and has, has been a top priority throughout
1: yeah was that stockpiling pretty apparent in march and did that slow down
0: in april yeah you know it's come in waves i mean march was by far the biggest spike particularly in the US. Canada, we saw um, the stockpiling wave come a bit later. But yes, it's kind of settled down and we're seeing volumes now that are up from the levels we saw before COVID, but not to the same degree as they were in March and April.
1: Yeah. Um, So you mentioned adoption spikes uh, as a bit of a tailwind. Has e-commerce also been a tailwind for you or has that been An issue, given that you have so much of your sales coming from brick and mortar stores.
0: Yeah, you know, so e-commerce, you know, it's interesting. E-commerce has been growing like crazy in the pet industry. Our our main sales channel today is is still independent pet stores um, across the U.S. and Canada. E-commerce is a growing part of our business, and so what we actually saw was during the stockpiling months, both e-commerce and retail spiked like crazy, and I think that was a function of you know consumers just wanted product you know and i think especially with delays people were seeing on e-commerce retail stores really benefited when it came to to these consumer staples and i'd say like our when we look at our retail base there are a lot of of great retailers who have adapted very quickly and you know what we've been trying to play our part to support that and to continue to drive growth in that channel and they've moved quickly to for example click and collect curbside pickup Uh, you know, I've been blown away by the growth there. And I think there's something to the convenience of having, you know, one hour, two hour turnaround time on, especially on a product like pet food, where you're usually getting it when you run out and you really need it. But there's no doubt. I mean, e-commerce has seen a massive spike. Like I think e-commerce purchases have as a percent of total have almost doubled um, in just a few months. And all of the consumer research we see, indicates that a lot of consumers are going to continue shopping online.
1: I'm assuming most retailers understand that selling online is a part of a growing business like yours. But given that you rely on these retailers, do they care if you are going direct to customer? Do they want price parity? Uh, are there any issues with going direct?
0: Yeah, you know, I think there's always channel conflict, you know, and it's it's for us in our industry especially, it's very important to to manage that in a good way. And I think what we've always believed is you know, we want to invest in our brand. We want to bring our brand to as many consumers as possible. And then we want them to have kind of an optimal shopping experience and and be able to to shop where they want to shop. And so us, that means obviously today with even before COVID having a great e-commerce experience with COVID that just has accelerated and also having a great base of retailers who could serve our customers. So really providing that kind of omni-channel option to consumers To us, it all comes down to price parity, honestly, like for, you know, because there are certainly retailers who like most like retailers don't like, you know, like it's better to not have competition than to have competition. But I think they generally see the bigger picture of you need to build a brand. Consumers need different options. And as long as we're maintaining price parity, I think that's better for the brand. It's less consuming for the consumer. Um, and it enables retailers to compete and then consumers kind of make the choice of where they want to buy. So that's always been our mantra. It's like, how do we give the best experience in both channels? Um, and how do we maintain, you know, pricing that is in line with with what we're trying to build for the brand?
1: Do they feel the same way or differently about selling on Amazon or if you sell on Amazon?
0: You know, a lot of our retailers actually sell on Amazon, um, third party. And so even with Amazon, our approach is similar, you know, like price Maintaining price parity for the benefit of our brand and and resellers is like a core policy for us. So if a reseller wants if, if it's whether it's us on our website or a retailer on their own e-commerce platform or someone through Amazon, you know, we're very focused on having just a strong kind of IMAP policy is what we call it kind of a pricing policy to maintain pricing that's appropriate for the brand. And that serves kind of all sellers of the brand.
1: A second ago, you were talking about customer experience on the web, and that's something that's been accelerated during the pandemic. And I think in the past, we've spoken about this and people spend something like 30 minutes in a store just getting informed and looking at products. So how do you replicate that kind of experience on the web and how do you build a deeper customer experience online?
0: Yeah, that's a a great question. It's definitely one of the challenges that we're trying to tackle and I think one of the the more lasting impacts of the pandemic that we're anticipating is that just the way shoppers behave is is going to change. And I think whether it's <clears throat> the fact that how retail reopens is still a bit of an open question, um, the timing of that reopening across different states and provinces, but then also what it looks like. You know, there's obviously uncertainty, but I mean, I think we all expect it to be different than it was pre-pandemic. And so, uh, you know, the days of of browsing the aisles and kind of Really talking to to retailers, it's going to be tough for a little, for a while. And so I think we we view it as our responsibility to kind of pick up that education piece and recommendation piece to a whole new level. Like it was already incumbent on us before, but now it's like just that much more important. So for us, it's it's looking at our digital presence. So for us, our our website primarily, but also obviously our social channels, our marketing, and figure out how do we how do we educate consumers how do we get enough information so much of it in this when you're trying to serve a customer is understanding what their needs are that's really the key to giving them good service or a good product right so how do we how do we use our website to have that dialogue with consumers to get the data we need to give them a great recommendation that offers them a solution so for us it's really about how do we get those data points through the customer journey with us online to be able to to give them a great recommendation that's that's really the key
1: open farm now uh, sells across north america Uh, do you have the luxury of looking at states that have reopened faster than other provinces and or other states in america and just gathering data on what reopening actually looks like and what the shopping experience looks like in store
0: pet stores in the states have actually been open throughout the pandemic and um they've been allowed to stay open as essential businesses but what we've seen is obviously as shelter-in-place restrictions have been lower, consumers are starting to go back out. They're starting to shop. I think For retailers, you know, it's it's really it's it's going to be challenged because they're going to have they have capacity limits on how many people could come into the store. They have um, obviously social distancing. It's going to be a big challenge, honestly, for retailers who who use a similar playbook to what they. They did pre-pandemic. And so, you know, what I find encouraging, honestly, is we've found across the U.S. and in this way, pet, and it's it's one of those, it's one of the few kind of like verticals in retail where you have a lot of independent pet specialty shops, like, you know, in the U.S. and Canada together, there's, I don't know, probably 9,000, 10,000. So it's quite a, a lot of, of doors. And, you know, I have found pretty encouraging that there are a lot of retailers who have who very quickly kind of pivoted to like I mentioned earlier click and pick, curbside pickup, some have started their own e-commerce. I think that that's obviously more challenging because you're going against your your Amazon and your Chewy and the in the US which are obviously massive competitors. But it's been, you know, I think what we've seen is that the go- the retailers who are moving to these new ways of interacting with their consumers and who are kind of embracing not necessarily digital commerce, but digital marketing, how am I getting, how am I still adding that value to my consumer? But now it's through Instagram, Facebook, email, other forms of marketing, instead of an in-person interaction in my store. They've actually, on it, a lot of them have seen volumes at or higher than, than they had them in January or February.
1: Just random question about Chewy, that sale to PetSmart, I think it was over $3 billion a few years ago. Is that still the largest e-commerce transaction in history?
0: I believe it is. Yeah. So they, I think it was a $3.3 billion acquisition. So it was a bit bigger than Jet when Walmart acquired Jet.com. And honestly, since that acquisition, I mean, they've, that business has just grown like crazy.
1: Do you pay attention to these deals at all? Like when you see Chewy get acquired for that kind of number, does it give you any more confidence that you are moving in the right direction?
0: It does definitely reaffirm, I think, the strength of our category. You know, to me, what's amazing about Chewy is that they had such confidence to invest and, and they're still investing like crazy to grow their business. And it's because of how sticky of a category Pet is. Um, at least this is my outside in view of it. I mean, they, they knew that if they could win customers, give them great food recommendations, give amazing kind of best in class customer service, that they could build a really loyal customer base and, and very big lifetime value and their customers over time. And I think I think that's true. And I think we see it with our own retailers. We see it with our own brand. If you're able to really deliver to pet parents, um, it's a super, pet food's just a super sticky category. Um, so in that way, it definitely gives us a lot of conviction. You know, we think we have some, we think we have a product that's that's different, that's unique, that has a great value proposition for consumers that pets, do, that dogs just love. And so... That's from Tui, that's my one big takeaway is, you know, have that confidence, keep investing heavily in, in the business and providing customers a great experience and the long-term value is is there.
1: Speaking of providing customers a great experience, I think they had an entire customer service team dedicated to handwriting cards to consumers on their birthdays and post-purchase and other milestones along the way. And they were gathering all this customer data, I think, in their CRM.
0: Honestly they they are like a best in class e-commerce customer service machine no question. I mean I think they all I think what you're saying is 100% true and you know they have um, and we've taken some lessons from them uh, as many as we could get for sure.
1: You've been fortunate enough to see very strong growth in March through May. I'm assuming growth has continued uh, into June and you're projecting further growth beyond this month. Um, but you are executing at "quote" unquote 120% to make that happen. So so what does that look like in practice?
0: You know, I think we're lucky. And I always you know, talking about being at 120% sounds like a complaint, but I think big picture being an essential industry, we've been we've been fortunate. But it has, you know, especially March and April heading into the pandemic. I mean, the team was extremely stretched. We were very, very focused on Building inventory and, and meeting the, the massive spike in demand. I mean, we saw over a hundred percent jump in our business month over month from February to March, and really our full team, um, especially our team on the supply chain side, you know, really dialed in. And um, it was—it's obviously been a u- unique time for everyone. Like, while all of this was going on, we were also transitioning to a f- full work-from-home model, trying to make sure that. Nothing was slipping through the cracks, so it was you know it was a very intense period. I think our team really came together to execute. I mean, we had an almost ninety-seven percent fill rate in the month, uh, ninety-six or ninety-seven percent fill rate in the month of March, wh- while doubling our business. Which you know, for those in CPG, would know. I mean, that's a great fill rate any day of the week, let alone during a, a global pandemic.
1: What about the remote team thing, the, um, the, the managing the health and, and mental wellness of a remote team? Have there been any challenges there?
0: For us, the execution element of that has been extremely strong, I think. And we're, we're lucky, you know, our team has really banded together. In a lot of ways, we're, we're more productive, more efficient. We're communicating extremely well. Um, you know, I think from a leadership perspective, for me and, and the rest of our of our management team it's really been about how do we continue to you know build strong culture have people um energized and excited about work be there to support people who are having a tougher time and you know i think it's this has been a hard time for everyone and people have very different circumstances whether it's taking care of kids at home whether it's living alone and being isolated for a long period of time and so i think there's been a you know, trust and real, really kind of faith in in each other as teammates has been so important, um, but has really paid off.
1: Do your employees talk to you about the fear of being laid off?
0: Yeah, you know, we had um, we have a a pretty transparent culture, and I think that at the outset of the pandemic, I think was certainly top of mind and a and a concern, like understandably for you know many folks on the team and. I think we're, you know, we're lucky across the three businesses. We haven't laid off um, anybody. And I think we're obviously seeing good performance and we've continued to invest in the businesses.
1: You received a Bachelor of Civil Law from McGill in 2009. Did you practice law after graduation?
0: So I, um, I did not. I actually... You know, so I I basically worked during my time in in law school. I worked for a couple of corporate M and A firms, one in Toronto, one in New York. Got some really good exposure, like to uh, some MA deals, some financings, but also really quickly realized that law wasn't going to be for me. And so um, I graduated in '09. You know, right at the tail end of the uh, of the last recession, and um, or the global financial crisis, and decided, you know, I'm going to try something else. And so I went into management consulting. Um, and that's really where I fell in love with consumer products. I spent most of my time um, in consulting, working on on um, CPG, primarily food products. Um, but so I kind of bounced around. I did that for a little bit. I did private equity, um, you know, at a at a firm here in Toronto, investing in Basically, doing growth equity investing in mid-market companies, and um, so no, I've had a bit more of a of a journey through different career paths, I guess you would say, before before jumping into my own business.
1: So, do you feel like the background in consulting and PE, for example, has helped you to raise, um, you know, the X number of millions of dollars that you have done for this business?
0: Yeah. I, you know, I really, um, to me, it was all, all of those, even law was super valuable. And I still use that today in the, in my own business, not that I'm a licensed lawyer, but to me, it was always about learning new things, getting new, like staying challenged, um, working with smart people. And I think from my experience at some great law firms to, consulting, private equity. I really took pieces along the way. And I worked with some fantastic people who I really learned a lot from. And I think each of those have really, you know, the legal side, the private equity side have definitely helped in terms of how to capitalize a business, how to fund a business. You know, Canada Pooch, we actually had an exit last year. So how to, how to sell part of a business. Those were foundational like experiences for me, for sure for me, that made what are really challenging, high stress <clears throat> types of activities, just things that I was kind of familiar with and that I had uh, some intuition for built up um, for my time in PE and law and consulting, you know, just a food experience. Like I did a ton of work in food manufacturing and supply chain. I did a lot of work on the corporate development side, sales um, and marketing side. So I've, I've been able to kind of patch all of that together and it's been super helpful um, in building Open Farm. And and honestly, the fact that I jumped around a bit, I don't know if it's a, like probably my resume wouldn't look that great if I was applying for a job. But I think in terms of being an entrepreneur, like really building your own business, there's constant curveballs. You have to change. You have to adapt. You need to be able to learn new things. And I think you know that training of kind of going from one field to the next and and Learn it, like starting with a lower base of knowledge and then ramping up time and again has really made me just comfortable with that.
1: Great mindset in the wake of a pandemic also. And that's probably um, been working to your advantage. What's it been like running a business with your spouse?
0: Yeah, you know, for for us, it honestly just works. We've uh, we're lucky we've been doing it for for going on 10 years together now. And, um, you know, I think for us, it's really we have a we're super complimentary. We have very complementary skill sets, and we really trust each other. And I don't think we don't overlap because we work very collaboratively together, but there's a very clear delineation of what Jacqueline works on and owns, what I work on and own. And then we're really just there to support each other. So I think you know we always say with partners working together, it either really works or it really doesn't from what we've seen. And I think we're lucky that we're on the side where we're able to work together really well. Do
1: you find it challenging to disconnect at the end of the day? Are you always talking about business?
0: Great question. That's one of the hardest parts for sure. And I think, to be honest, we go in waves. You know, we'll have, um, we'll have weeks where maybe it's business is more intense or there is an issue, an ongoing issue that we're working on and, and it could become overwhelming for sure. And, but we're pretty good. I mean, really, what we, the approach that we've kind of taken is if it gets to that point, um one of us whether it's Jacqueline at times or me will just say look like this week 6 p.m. 5 p.m. whatever it is like we're done we're not talking about work and i think we learned that that regulating in that way is is really important
1: okay for more on open farm listeners can go to openfarmpet.ca they can also find you in stores and where can people find out more on open farm online or on social media
0: yeah openfarmpet.ca um, and our handle on socials, Open Farm Pet.
1: All right, Isaac. Well, it's been great having you on the podcast. Appreciate you taking the time, and congratulations on all the growth so far. And all the best as you continue navigating through this this COVID era that we're in, and uh, into the next chapter.
0: Thanks so much for having me, Evan. Appreciate it. Again. ElectroCast. Transform your influence. ElectroCast. ElectroCast.